0: title of the sermon this morning is Miraculous Mercy, and I'll invite you to open up your Bibles with me this morning to the Gospel of Matthew. In the Gospel of Matthew, when you arrive there, the opening chapter, chapter 1, will begin reading this morning in verse 18. If you can rise to your feet to honor the public reading of God's Word this morning, Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, we read, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly Jesus. So reads God's holy and errant and infallible word. Let's pray together. Father, as we once again turn to a passage that many of us are very familiar with, God, may we be in awe of this glorious truth. God, may your Holy Spirit teach us afresh this morning that we would see your miraculous mercy at work we pray you would do this for our good and for your glory we pray these things in Jesus name amen please be seated notice throughout the Bible that we read of God working miracles to bring children into the world for his purposes and for his promises to fulfill his promises We know that God promised a son to Abraham and Sarah. And though they were beyond childbearing years, Sarah conceived and brought forth Isaac. And then we know, as Genesis continues to tell us, that Isaac, his wife Rebecca, was also barren. And yet God opened up her womb and brought forth twins, Jacob. And Esau. And Jacob's wife, Rachel, it's recorded, was also barren, but God opened up her womb and brought forth Joseph and then Benjamin. The Bible also records a man named Manoah, whose wife was barren, but the Lord opened up her womb and brought forth Samson. We also know of a man named Elkanah, and his wife Hannah, who was barren. And yet the Lord opened up her womb and brought forth Samuel. And we also know of a man named Zacharias, whose wife Elizabeth was barren. Yet in her old age, God opened up her womb and brought forth John the Baptist." we see God's hand over and over and over again, working in the miracles of opening the womb to fulfill his purposes and his promises. Yet in all those that I mentioned, God used the natural means of procreation to bring forth those children. Now, there's one very unique aspect of the Christmas story the facts of how our Savior came into the world, and that is that he was born of a virgin birth. As one commentator put it, this is a unique miracle of God, not simply another miracle of God, which would cause us to stop and pause and to consider. And so as we consider the virgin birth this morning, we see God demonstrating his miraculous mercy toward his people. We'll take this passage in the Gospel of Matthew this morning and we'll look to four different points this morning. If you're a note taker, those four points will be, one, divinely planned. Two, divinely presented. Three, divinely performed. And four, divinely personalized. Planned, presented, performed, and personalized. Starting with our first point this morning, this was divinely planned, the coming of our Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. This was prophesied about over and over. There was prophecies throughout the Old Testament saying that he would come. And especially at this time of year, some of those rise to our attention, and we often think of what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 9-6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now that is glorious in and of itself. And we can go to many other prophecies throughout the Old Testament. This morning, I'm going to fix your eyes on what Matthew speaks of in his gospel. And though some scholars estimate that the prophecies are in the hundreds, Matthew alone quotes over 60 times from prophetic passages in the Old Testament, showing how Christ has fulfilled them all. We know part of God's divine plan was to send a messenger before the day of the Lord. A messenger that we learned through the study, through Malachi, who would turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers. The messenger would come with a ministry like Elijah's. And Matthew, in his gospel, beginning in chapter 3, focuses on the ministry Of John the Baptist as that coming messenger who would prepare the way for Christ. This, along with the many other Old Testament fulfillments, were recorded by Matthew to show that Jesus' coming to earth was divinely planned. In the opening two chapters of Matthew, Matthew refers to five Old Testament fulfillments. Surrounding the birth of Christ. Would you flip your Bibles over to chapter 2? I'm going to begin there first. Just jumping around a little bit in chapter 2, if you'd bear with me. But in the opening part of chapter 2 in verse 1, Matthew records that Jesus is born in Bethlehem. And then scanning down to verse 6, you'll see that he quotes Micah 5.2. And also a portion of Ezekiel 34, 23. In Matthew 2, 6, we read, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Matthew continues to record the story of what occurred and how angels directed Joseph to flee Egypt because Herod had sent men to find the child and destroy him. If you scan down to verse 15, at the end of verse 15, once again, Matthew quotes the Old Testament in Hosea 11.1. Look at Matthew 2.15. The end of it, it says, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt, I called my son. He continues to record this Christmas story. He then records how Herod had all the male children, two years old and under, killed in Bethlehem, and in the surrounding regions. And if you look down to verses 17 and 18 of chapter 2, he quotes Jeremiah 31, 15 and says, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. And once again, Matthew continues writing and recording the circumstances that led to Joseph taking Jesus and his bride Mary back to their hometown of Nazareth to live. And we read in verse 23 of chapter two, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he could be called a Nazarene. You might say, why are we going through all these? Isn't this a lot? Are we going to go through all 60 plus of them? The point is this, Matthew begins by recording all this to show that this was all divinely planned. It didn't just happen by chance. That God had spoken, this is how it's going to take place. That all of the prophecies of the Old Testament would be fulfilled in Jesus. And rather than going forward and continuing to cover Matthew's gospel, I want to go back into our passage this morning to the first recorded prophecy that was fulfilled. Turn back to chapter 1, if you would. Look with me again at verse 23, where Matthew quotes Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. We read, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son And they shall call his name Emmanuel. This is the virgin birth, better understood or better to to call it the virginal conception. It was like any other miracle done by God. It was God's plan to send his son into the world. Jesus would be Emmanuel, God with us. But we must be careful not to misunderstand. This plan. The plan is not that Jesus would be born into existence as the second person of the Godhead. Jesus has always existed. Many of you are familiar with the opening of John's gospel, where he starts with those beginning words, in the beginning, taking our minds back to Genesis 1. He says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. See, before creation, before time, Jesus was. He then entered time and space and dwelt among us. Jesus himself in John chapter six, verse 38 said, for I have come down from heaven we must be very careful not to think that when we speak of the virgin birth that jesus just at that point came into existence he's always existed scripture is very clear that this is the plan that the father has had to send his son into the world to save his people we read in galatians chapter 4 verses 4 and 5 But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ was divinely planned. It was for our good and for God's glory. Secondly, this morning, it was also divinely planned presented. We learn in our passage in Matthew the context of Christ's birth. If you're not there, flip back to Matthew chapter 1. We see here in verse 18 that this all occurred during a time when Mary and Joseph were betrothed. Now, we often equate in our culture a betrothal as or being betrothed as being engaged and yet it was much more than the engagement of our modern times to be betrothed in that time was the same as to be married to somebody the only exception is that the couple had yet to move in together and so they had yet to come together sexually in other words they had yet to become one flesh together But during that betrothal period, the woman was considered the lawful wife, and the man was considered the lawful husband. And this is why, if you look at your Bibles and you see in verse 19, Matthew refers to Joseph as Mary's husband. And since betrothal was viewed as a legal state of marriage, unfaithfulness during the betrothal period, would be considered adultery. And it's helpful for the context of understanding our passage this morning and this betrothal between Joseph and Mary for us to understand what the law described as the punishment for adultery in this matter. If you would, go ahead and hold your place there in Matthew and flip to the fifth book of the Bible, flip to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 22. Deuteronomy 22, if you would scan down to verse 23, Deuteronomy chapter 22, starting in verse 23, we read, if there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out of the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death with stones." the young woman because she has not because she did not cry for help though she was in the city and the man because he violated his neighbor's wife so you shall purge the evil from your midst now this text here this is part of the law speaks specifically of the betrothed virgin our text in matthew is speaking of the betrothed virgin mary The law here is talking about a betrothed virgin that if she hooks up inappropriately with another man, that the penalty for that would be their very lives. It says here, if she does not cry for help, that's another way of saying if it was consensual. In this event... The law declared that this sin or this evil, if it is found out, it would require that both evildoers be purged out to be put to death. If you look over in chapter 24, we also see a little more about any sexual mixed conduct in a marriage. In verse 1 of Deuteronomy 24, The law also requires a husband to write a certificate of divorce if his wife is found with any type of indecency, sexually speaking. And so keep those things in mind. Keep in mind what we saw in Deuteronomy 22. Keep in mind what we see in Deuteronomy 24 about writing a certificate of divorce if found with any type of indecency. Keep that in mind as we flip back now to Matthew's gospel. I want to read again as we turn to Matthew's Gospel, verses 18 and 19 with you. Matthew, chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce Joseph. Her quietly. How many times do we read the Bible and just keep reading but don't stop and think about what's going on? I mean, could you imagine the troubled heart of Joseph when he finds out that his wife is pregnant? What Joseph knows is, I have never been with her. And yet, she is pregnant. They had yet to move in together, yet to be intimate together, or as Matthew writes it, before they came together. But Joseph learns that Mary is pregnant. What is the reaction of a husband to find out these things? Joseph could have been rightly angry, very, very angry. He could have been rightly jealous, Yet all that is recorded that we learn about him in this situation is that he is a just man. Joseph, above all else, above his own feelings, above his own rights, above all else, he desired to do what was right. He had every right, according to the law, to humiliate his wife in a public hearing, to bring her out in front of a crowd, and let everyone around know that she had been unfaithful. Yet apparently, out of love for his wife, he chose to quietly obey the law by divorcing her quietly. He chose not to make a spectacle out of her. Now it's noteworthy to to see in the other Gospels where we read more about this, Now, when we look to Luke's gospel, we see that Mary was also forewarned that this was going to take place, that she, as a virgin, would bear a son. So, to help us in in what's going on here, I encourage you to flip over to Luke's gospel. We will come back to this text in Matthew, but flip over to Luke's gospel. In the opening chapter, Starting in verse 26, Luke chapter 1, starting in 26, we get a little bit more of the story. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. The Son of God. So Mary is warned. She is told this is going to happen. But could you imagine her reaction when she realized that she was pregnant? Yes, she was told by an angel. But what about all the ramifications around her, in her marriage, in society? What would run through her mind? And being forewarned, what would run between her conversation with her and Joseph? I mean, Scripture nowhere says that this happened, but could you imagine Mary, when she's found to be pregnant, trying to explain to Joseph, oh, by the way, I wasn't unfaithful, it was the Holy Spirit. I mean, try that at anybody's marriage. I can't imagine that would go over very easily for Joseph such a thing is unheard of, had never happened before. And yet, it was the truth. I mean, outside of Adam, whom God formed from the dust of the ground and breathed life into him, outside of Eve, whom God formed from Adam's rib, every other miracle of life came through God's design of procreation, which required both a male and a female. It required Intimacy between the two, and that had not taken place between Joseph and Mary. The only reasonable conclusion in their marriage would be that she was unfaithful. No other conclusion makes sense. And Joseph, being a just man, a man who loved Mary, resolved to divorce her. Quietly. Turn back with me to Matthew's gospel, that same passage we're looking at in Matthew chapter 1. If you look with me at verse 20, look at God's merciful presentation of the facts to Joseph. Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 20, but as he, speaking of Joseph, considered these things, all that's going on, remember, I mean, what he hears is both comforting and absolutely mind-blowing. Comforting because he learns that Mary has not, in fact, been unfaithful to him. Mind-blowing because he learns that his wife, who is pregnant, is pregnant through the agent of the Holy Spirit. And that she will bear the Savior of the world. Can you imagine Guys that are here, could you imagine being Joseph and hearing that? Absolutely amazing. Look at Joseph's response, verses 24 and 25. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Jesus. So in this context, though Mary is with child, she is pregnant. Joseph obeys the angel and he takes Mary home. Before that, they did not live together. He now brings her into his home with him. This would save Mary, the public humiliation of being betrothed and being pregnant. It would also establish Joseph as the legal father of Jesus. This is why the community often believed that Joseph was the actual father. They would say things like, isn't this the carpenter's son? He had legal status as the father of Jesus. So Joseph took his wife, meaning he and Mary would live together. And as Matthew puts it here, he knew her not until she had given birth. Now, I think most of you can figure out what is being said there. And for the sake of all the ears in this place this morning, it means they had not come together intimately. Though they lived together, they waited until Jesus was born. We've seen this morning how God's miraculous mercy was divinely planned, and it was divinely presented. And now we'll look at how it's divinely performed in our third point this morning, divinely performed. Matthew begins his synopsis of the birth of Jesus Christ without hesitation about what occurred. In our passage in Matthew chapter one, look again with me at verses, or at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. It's matter of fact. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child from the Holy Spirit. Glance down to verse 20. The angel also makes it clear to Joseph. Verse 20, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the clear, active agent in the conception and birth of Jesus. We also learn as we read Luke's account of the angel Gabriel telling Mary what would happen of her being pregnant and having this child from the Holy Spirit, that in that account it speaks of Mary three times as a virgin. And I'll read it to you, you don't have to flip back, but we read earlier in Luke chapter one, verse 34, that when Mary was told of this, she responds with a question. A very good question, by the way. Mary says, how will this be done since I am a virgin? And we read in Luke's gospel, chapter 1, verse 35, the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Jesus was not the result of natural means. He was of supernatural means. The Holy Spirit superseded the natural order of things. Jesus was born of humanity through Mary, but he also retained his divinity through the agent of the Holy Spirit acting in Mary's conception. So I want to pause. I want to ask a question. Make sure we're all on the same page. And we're all thinking about what we're hearing. The question is this. Was the child born to Mary human? Saw some head nods over here. See a lot of straight heads not going anywhere over here. Don't need to shout or anything, but body language is helpful. Those of you going this direction... Yes, Jesus was most certainly human. So let me ask another question. Was the child born to Mary God? Ooh, and verbal affirmation that time as well. Good. Now we're all checked back in. Yes, absolutely. Jesus is the second person of the Godhead. He retained that. So what do we have In this child being born, we now have the God-man, fully human and fully God. Theologians refer to this as the hypostatic union. This teaches that the two natures of Jesus, the one fully human, the other fully divine, are united together in one person, in the God-man. Now, this is important because Jesus is not two persons. He is one person. And it is only through the virginal conception that Jesus could be fully human and fully divine. I want you to listen to the way Augustine, one of the early church fathers from the fourth century, spoke about Christ. Augustine said this, he was created By a mother whom he created. He was carried by hands that he formed. He cried in the manger in wordless infancy, he the word without whom all human eloquence is mute. Man was added to him, God not lost to him. He emptied himself not by losing what he was, but by taking to him what he was not. End quote. Now, I quote him because he said that way better than I could say it. But there are others who have said wonderful things of putting all this information together. Spurgeon said this. Speaking of Christ, he said, He is not humanity deified, He is not Godhead humanized, He is God, He is man. He is all that God is and all that man is as God created him. End quote. Give you one more. John Owen put it this way John Owen said, When he took on him the form of a servant in our nature, he became what he had never been before. But he did not cease to be what he always had been in his divine nature. He who is God cannot ever cease to be God, end quote. This is absolutely amazing. To slow down and to think upon Jesus, the God-man. To consider even the way that Paul describes Jesus in the opening of Colossians. Actually, you don't turn there with me. Flip over to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, I'll just pinpoint a couple of verses here. Although 15 through 20 are amazing if you're taking notes, but we'll just pinpoint a couple in there. Colossians chapter 1, look what Paul writes beginning at verse 16. Speaking of Christ in verse 16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This is the Christ we're speaking of. It is this Jesus, the one through whom all things were created. The one who has always existed as the second person of the triune God. That though being God, he came to earth as a man. We refer to this as the incarnation of Christ. Coming from the Latin meaning in flesh. He took on flesh. Flesh. And it was through the virginal birth by which the eternal Son of God became incarnate as fully human. And he was born without sin. Since Jesus was conceived of a woman by the agency of the Holy Spirit, he is set apart from original sin. Without being born in sin, Jesus stands parallel to Adam but Jesus, however, he's a true and better Adam. Comparing Jesus and Adam, Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, verse 19. He writes, For as by the one man's disobedience, speaking of Adam, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, speaking of Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Paul also writes to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 15, speaking about this comparison. 1 Corinthians 15, he writes, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. The true and better Adam. Adam himself did not represent the human race well. He disobeyed God as our representative And now we are all born into sin. And we know the wages of sin. Death. Jesus, however, lived a sinless life, a perfect life, and is the representative of all his people. Jesus, the God-man, being fully human, can be our adequate representative and substitutionary sacrifice. Jesus, as a man, he died as a substitute for sinners. He took upon himself the penalty that was rightly due to every sinner. And Jesus, the God-man, being fully God, lived a perfect, sinless life as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Scholar Bruce Ware puts it this way. He said, quote, Our Savior must be fully man in order to take the place of men and die in their stead. And he must be fully God in order for the value of his sacrificial payment to satisfy the demands of our infinitely holy God. Man he must be. But a mere man simply could not make this infinite payment for sin. End quote. This is why Jesus would declare of himself, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Salvation is through Christ alone. This perfectly segues us into the last point this morning, that this is divinely personalized. If you are In Colossians or or in another passage, would you turn back with me to our passage in Matthew this morning? Matthew chapter 1. In our passage before us this morning in Matthew 1, if you would turn your eyes to verse 21. Matthew 1, 21, we read, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus, the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua or Yeshua, meaning Yahweh is salvation or the Lord is salvation. His very name was about saving his people. It is the purpose of his coming that he would save his people From their sins. What does that mean? That Jesus would have to come through this means of a virginal birth to save his people. What this means is we couldn't save ourselves. And yet there are many people that are trying. Think maybe if I just do a little bit better. Maybe if I just try harder. Maybe on that day I will merit something before a holy God. What we have is a whole lot of sin, and that sin is storing up the wrath of God. We cannot save ourselves. We have no righteousness of our own. Listen, we need a savior. We need a savior. In writing to the believers in Rome, Paul quotes Psalm 14 in Romans chapter 3. Starting in verse 10, he says this. Listen, quoting Psalm 14, he says, None is righteous, no not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. Boy, that's a real warm and fuzzy verse for our Advent season. But it's truth. No one seeks for God. And if no one seeks for God, the question I put before you then is, how then can we be saved? If No one seeks for God. Jesus spoke of himself this way. He said, the son of man came to seek and to save that which is lost. Do you understand who is seeking? We have a seeking Savior who came to earth to save his people. He comes so that we could be with him. The same Jesus in verses that many of us know so well, said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus continued, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This was the mission of Jesus, to save his people. And this is why salvation is through Christ alone. We know the Bible tells us there is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. It's the name of Jesus. It's this Jesus we speak of this morning, this Jesus who was born of a virgin birth, and that this virgin birth would demonstrate miraculous mercy. God would send his son to pay the penalty for sin that we all rightly deserve. God speaking through the prophet Isaiah. Listen, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18 says this Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, They shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. God says, come, let us reason together. Consider these things, that salvation is through him. And for all who would repent and believe in Christ, miraculous mercy is theirs, that all their sin would be forgiven. As far as the east is from the west, so far does God remove our transgressions from us. That He would cast all of our sins in the depths of the sea, that he will remember them no more. Make sure we get this right. Jesus came to save sinners. I'm looking around and I see a whole lot of them I look in the mirror, I see another one. We're all in the same boat. We have all sinned against a holy God. And yet miraculous mercy is afforded to all of us through Christ Jesus. And it's up to us to turn by God's grace. That would work in us to turn to Christ, to turn from sin and to place our trust in Christ alone. If you're here this morning and you know this news and you can get the answers right in a trivia game and yet your life is not turned and committed to Christ, he beckons you to come to him this morning, to turn to him, to turn to him wholehearted, to lay down every other pursuit in life, to give it all up that you might gain Christ. Come to Jesus. Don't put it off any longer. Don't say, well, maybe tomorrow. Tomorrow is promised to no man. Today is the day of salvation. The Lord Jesus beckons you to come to him now. Let's pray. Father, what wonderful news that we have heard this morning. Father, you would demonstrate your love. You would demonstrate your mercy through sending your son, through miraculous means, through a virginal conception, that he might come and be our representative, that he might live a perfect, sinless life that we could not live. He would die as a perfect sacrifice without spot or blemish for the penalty that we rightly deserved. Father, may those of us who your grace has given us the gift of repentance and faith, may we rejoice once again in the glorious news of your Son, Jesus. But God, I pray this morning for anyone in this place, including these children that are here before us, maybe even raised in a home that would speak the name of Christ, that would pray to Christ, that would honor Christ in their homes, that even these young ones, this day would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Father, perhaps there are those this morning who have walked in off the street have visited us here this morning, and once again they hear this glorious news about Jesus. Would you draw them to Christ? Would you gift them repentance and faith?